The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present, and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association, and welcome to Season 6 of the Retail Therapy Podcast, proudly brought to you by American Express. In today's retail landscape, it's vital to understand the nuance and intricacies of diversity, equality and inclusion. It isn't just a buzzword, but a powerful force driving innovation and change across the sector. In each episode this season, we'll be focusing on the specific branch of the DNI tree, speaking to pioneers and leaders in their respective fields. Joining me for some retail therapy for the first episode of Season 6, focusing on diversity, equality, inclusion, is Lisa Anise, CEO at the Diversity Council of Australia. Lisa was named one of the AFR's 100 Women of Influence in 2018, and then in 2019 she was elected to the Board of Amnesty International Australia, and in 2021 to the Board of Nonpartisan Organisation Women for Election. Under Lisa's leadership, the Diversity Council has produced a broad array of groundbreaking evidence-based research around diversity, equality, inclusion, and making her a terrific first guest for Season 6. Lisa, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. Now, Lisa, tell us, what led you on this career path? How important is DNI to you, not only from a career perspective, but on a personal one too? I mean, I think I've always been motivated by equity and fairness, and I started my career in banking and finance, which was not fulfilling for me. I know, what a surprise. It would have been an all-male crew almost, would it? <laughs> it was. It was the 90s and it was in institutional banking and actually it was instrumental in me understanding how difficult workplaces can be. Um, I was a young, really young woman at the time and it was a very Wolf of Wall Street environment. Um, but it was just at the onset of this new, um, this progressive movement around inclusion. In those days, it really was only looking at gender equality, but, um, you know, it was I was lucky to, to be there at the beginning and um, haven't looked back. Have you sort of personally, when you think about your career, have you personally suffered and that's that's what's driven you into the, in the DNI space? I think every woman has lots of stories about... Um, about things, whether that's um, your experience at work. I can't think of a woman who couldn't roll out many stories mm. around workplace sexual harassment, and I'm no exception. Um, and I had earlier experiences in my life. One in particular, I remember um, I wanted to pursue a, sci- a scientific career as a teenager. I was really interested in cosmology. And... Um, my year 11 and 12 physics teacher didn't think that girls should study physics and put me and another girl in the class behind a screen for the whole two years. So try studying physics when you're not being taught by the teacher. So there were things like that. I think I always had this sense of, oh, that's not fair. (laughs) And I'm quite... um, passionate about fairness and equity and I think once you see things you can't unsee them um, and I think that what's really important is that the conversation around equity 
now no longer treats women as though they're a homogenous group. And also we understand that there's lots of ways in which people can experience inequity. And in fact, um, whilst we've made the most progress in the gender space, there are lots of other aspects of social identity um, where people are extremely marginalised that still need a lot of work. Now, this is the first episode of a 10-episode series, and we, we're going beyond gender. So describe to me how complex your role has become now because it goes, as you've mentioned, it goes far beyond gender now. And what, what issues are you currently most concerned about? Well, you have to start from the understanding that diversity essentially means that as human beings, we're all different from one another. And we all have aspects of social identity. Some of those aspects are protected attributes under the law, like our gender or sex, our race. Um, we may or may not have a disability. We could acquire one throughout our lives. We may or may not have caring responsibilities. We may acquire that throughout our lives. We all have an age. Um, and we all have a social class. It's something we don't often talk mm. about in Australia, but um, our social class is really important. So there are all these aspects of our social identity, and it's not about other people. This is about us. Um, we're all a mix of a whole bunch of attributes, and that influences how we see the world, but it also influences how people see us. And what we know is because the workplace was designed essentially in the industrial era and in those days it was designed for people with no visible caring responsibilities. Um, certainly if you were LGBTQI, you were absolutely in the closet. Um, there was no space for women in the workplace. There was no space for people with disabilities. I mean, the idea that you'd even have a conversation around colonisation and First Nations justice um, would be laughable. So our workplaces were designed with that very narrow, um, with that narrow understanding of who would be in the workplace and there's been enormous social change, necessary social change since then um, and as a result um, we're in a situation now where we can openly understand that the Australian community is made up of people who represent all different aspects of social identity. Some of those aspects of social identity are within the same individual. They might experience different marginalised forms of identity. Um, but we also know that there's a big war for talent in Australia, that there are 3 million Australian workers who are currently under-leveraged and underutilised. So whilst employers are saying they can't find people, what the research shows is that there are people, but they lack access to opportunity and that there are barriers either for them to access employment or to maintain employment um, because the workplace wasn't designed with them in mind. So what I'm interested in at DCA is how do we make our workplaces and all the processes around that, so whether that's recruitment or talent identification or creating or job design and flexible work, how do we do that in a way where we, we enable everyone to be able to fully participate? Um, those individuals will really benefit from meaningful employment um, and great work-life flexibility and employers will benefit because they'll have access to great talent. And great talent is found across all population groups mm. and it's distributed on a normal or a normative curve across all genders um, and sexualities, all races um, 
And so if you're only recruiting or developing talent from a narrow group of people, then you really are missing out on the best people. You raised some really good points there. And I understand a significant body of your work is centred on combating gendered harassment, discrimination and violence. While we've made some progress as a society, there's still so much more to do. Can you talk us through your accomplishments in this space particularly in some areas of concern that we still need to tackle? Um, I think that it's interesting because if we think of gender diversity as the like original diversity dimension in Australia, that's not true in other parts of the world. The diversity movement in Australia came out of the women's movement, right. which is why gender diversity has been the, the, the primary focus. If you're in the United States, it came out of civil rights, which is why race um, is the prevailing force of um, at the forefront of where they're trying to achieve progress. Um, but in Australia, it's been around gender, and we've had the most success in, in that area. We certainly have more women represented in leadership than ever before. We certainly have reduced the gender pay gap, not closed it. We certainly have greater protections for women and girls and men and gender diverse people at work. Um, but there still is a long way to go. On every measure, there is a long way to go. Um, we still don't have enough women represented in leadership, so we're not um, representing the community. We still don't have... Um, a pay gap that's acceptable mm. and that's worse in some sectors than others. We still massively undervalue um, feminised industries and we massively undervalue um, anyone who's involved in caring, whether that's in a paid capacity or an unpaid capacity. And I'm particularly passionate about that because I think that's probably the most important thing that – I mean, if you think about what we're here for as a species – I'm getting philosophical yes. here – we're actually not here to make buildings. We're here to create, educate, nurture and raise the next generation and then we die. That's our job as a yes. human race. Um, and it just is gobsmacking to me that the people that are involved most heavily in the creation, the nurturing, the raising, the rearing of children are the least valued people in our society. And we pay um, unqualified people on construction sites much more than we paid fully qualified early childhood educators. That, for me, is mind-blowing and it says something really about what point. we value yeah, as a yeah, society. really good point. So we've still got a long way to go on that front. Um, but we also know that women still, women and girls and gender-diverse people still face unacceptable levels of workplace harassment, gendered violence, sexual violence, intimate partner violence, and that's still a problem. So there's still a lot of work to go. We also know that if you're um, a woman with an intersecting marginalised identity, so you could be a, a lesbian or trans woman, you could be a racially marginalised woman or a woman with a disability, you'll experience higher rates of harassment and violence and it will be... Um, it will be you will experience it in a way particular to your marginalised identity. So trans women, um, women from racially marginalised groups, are fetishised in a way that white cis women are not. For example, mm. so if you don't understand how that plays out, it's hard to address it. So this is very complex. Now you mentioned the gender pay gap. It's it's an issue that we're seemingly yet 
to resolve. What changes do you think need to take place to better address this? Should there be a publicly accessible register of gender pay gap or gender pay discrepancies to hold companies accountable? Well, the exciting thing is, is that that is coming um, with the new changes to the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. They will be collecting organisational-wide pay gap information and publishing it. Um, you'll have to find the exact date that that's happening, but that is happening for organisations of 100 employees or more to be compliant under the Act. Um, you're going to have to do some work understanding your, your pay gap. Transparency is really important. If you want to, I mean, you mentioned in the intro, I'm on the board of Amnesty. Our symbol at Amnesty is a light. When you shine a light in dark places, in Amnesty's case, on human rights abuses, um, you can't look away anymore and you can do something about it. I mean, the same principle applies here. It's if you, if you're public about the pay gap, organisations are under, um, pressure to address it Mm. and addressing it is complex but starting by measuring it is really important. One particular topic I want to talk to you now we're recording this before the referendum um, and the hot topic at the point of recording um, is the First Nations inclusivity. What are your thoughts on the voice and the discourse that's surrounding it as we lead up to that all-important vote? Yeah, look, um, I mean, it's strange to think that your listeners will be hearing this once we know what the outcome is. Um, leading up to it, I'm I'm worried about the discourse. I think that it's been so politicised. That's very, very unfortunate. Um, we're talking about real people and their lives Um And we're talking about individuals who are amongst the most marginalised groups in our society. I mean, you can't look at the Closing the Gap report and not recognise that we need to do things differently. Um, I think the discourse is very toxic. I think that it's um, aimed at politicising something that doesn't need to be politicised. I think if we want to move forward as a mature country, we have to come to terms with our past like any grown-up, you have to do the therapy work and come to terms with point. your part. I mean, it's... Yes, we all have to part, do it. It yeah. is. It's part of your journey yes. into maturity. You can't pretend things didn't happen. Um, but we do have a history. No one alive today is directly responsible for it. No one's saying that. Um, but it's our obligation as a mature country to try and address the problems that have arisen as a result of the way in which um, our country's history has manifested. So I'm really concerned about the discourse. I think that it's a really tough year or it has been a really tough year for First Nations people to be discussed and scapegoated and stereotyped is a dehumanising experience. Um, to have other people have an opinion on you um, is demoralizing and I'm I'm worried about the way the the debate is happening what I hope is that we will be successful um yeah so, so tell me what a success what would success mean success in this referendum means that we can move forward as a country 
um, it means that we will be creating or creating in our constitution not only the recognition about the truth about our past, but we will be creating a voice that will help guide um, the future for Indigenous Australians and it won't affect anybody else. So that principle of self-determination that, you know, nothing about us without us um, is critical in creating a difference. What we've done is applied our, essentially, our very Western lens of how we understand societies to be structured and we've, we've applied those solutions to what we see as, in inverted commas, problems within um, Indigenous communities or amongst Indigenous peoples. And it grossly misunderstands how um, Aboriginal kinship structures work um, and how change happens within a non-Western context. And it's really... To misunderstand that is to create more problems. So the only solution is that there is that First Nations peoples are given the power and the rights and the authority to be in charge of their destiny. Um, and what better way of doing that than constitutionally enshrining a voice so that people who make the laws in this country um, have to consult with representative First Nations peoples on matters that affect them. Lisa, what would a no vote mean? I think if we're waking up and it's a no vote, I think that that's just terrible for our country and it's terrible for all of us. Um, I'd like to ask people, how do you wake up the next day and do an acknowledgement of country? If you're an organisation and you're focused on diversity, equity and inclusion and you didn't step up for the Yes campaign, how do you acknowledge country that first meeting, that next day? How do you do it? Mm. How do you hand on heart say you're committed to DE&I when First Nations people as a group are saying, we want this? Um, how do you say that you're supporting reconciliation and that you have a reconciliation action plan. Um, I think it's going to be really, really, it's a missed opportunity to create, um, to forge a new way forward and to move towards true reconciliation. It will hold us back as a country because it will be an opportunity that will be lost for a generation to do something differently because, you know, the... What, what do they say? Well, I don't know who coined this, but the definition of insanity is continue to do the same thing and expect different outcomes. Yes. We know there's a lot of money that's spent on closing the gap. Is it working? No, so you have to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are telling us is the thing that they want. And for us to not listen to that when it doesn't affect non-Indigenous people, I think is um, is something that I hope doesn't come to pass but if it does, then I think that um, we all have to wear that responsibility. For a long time, even in the diversity inclusion space, we've talked about cultural diversity and exclusion, but rarely racism. But your recent report um, that's gone out to your members points out that we must start using the language of race and racism if we want to effectively address it. Can you explain this a little further? So... Um 
I mean, we're really interested at the DCA in understanding, obviously, how to create inclusion for people who are culturally and racially diverse within organisations. Um, and we've done actually a lot of work on understanding culture and how to become more culturally competent and how to measure culture in Australian workplaces. And what became really evident to us is that in our research is that people were raising that they are experiencing, in inverted commas, racism. What we understand what we took away from that is that we don't really understand what that means in Australia. Um, and primarily that's because we never talk about race. So when the global protests happened around racial justice that was triggered by the death of George Floyd in the United States, um, our members started coming to us saying, our staff and our stakeholders are asking us about anti-racism. How do we become anti-racist? And my response to that is, well, if you don't know what race means and you don't understand what racism is, then you can't. Um, so we realised that there was work to do around building racial literacy in Australia, that up until now, all we've done in Australia is talk about culture and talk about culturally and linguistically diverse people. So to understand the history of that, you have to know that we deliberately removed race-based language out of our um, out of our vernacular in the 60s and the 70s. We were quite rightly ashamed of the white Australia policy and with, a, with the hope of becoming less racist as a society, we took race out of our conversation. So all of our national instruments right. don't measure race. Mm. The census, apart from First Nations identity... We don't capture any data around race. The whole public sector moved to the language initially of non-English speaking background. Right. And then in the 90s under Howard to culturally and linguistically diverse. And because the public sector moved to that language, that means all hospitals, all schools, universities, um, all service providers um, now have created policy solutions around the language of multiculturalism. Now, you might look at that and think, well, multiculturalism is lovely, mm. which it is. Mm. I mean, it's lovely to value culture and value language. But actually, if you really unpack it with a cynical eye, what you can, what's happened is that we have stopped having the hard conversation, yes. which is about race. So we're the only country in the world that celebrates Harmony Day. Every other country names the day as it's named, which is the day of the elimination of racial discrimination. Right. We're the only country that doesn't talk about race. We're the only country who, during that week, we talk about food and folk dancing and festivals. Yes. And you talk to anyone who's come from a non-Anglo-Celtic part of the world and they will tell you the problem for Asian Australians for example, or people from the subcontinent has never been that people don't love going to a Chinese restaurant or a Thai restaurant or an Indian restaurant. That's not the issue. Mm. The issue is the experience of racism, um, not based on language, not based on culture, but based on, you know, social, you know, physical phenotype. So we feel that there's a real need to start to reintroduce race-based language so that we can then understand what racism is and then we can address it. And the 
current acronym of culturally linguistically diverse captures within it anyone for whom their ancestry is not Anglo-Celtic. So that means that um, if you have a Swedish or a Finnish background or if you're from Nigeria or Zimbabwe, you're grouped in the same group. And what we know is that you just don't have the same experience. Uh, Someone from Sweden and someone, you know, an African person who's visibly looks visibly different, they walk through Australia and they have wildly different experiences of being accepted or experiencing racism. So we can't just use the language of culture, culturally linguistically diverse, important as it is to understand culture and language, and that's not to say that that's unimportant, but if you want to eliminate racism, then you need to talk about race. So we've tried to introduce, or we are introducing, um, some tools around how to have those conversations around race, how to measure race, what is race, what is racism, and how do we um, address it. I think all our listeners are going to find that really, really helpful. So um, we do have a DNI. Um, Microsite on our website uh, for the retail community, but equally they can get onto the uh, Diversity Council of Australia website yep. to get more information because that's a big piece of work that you've done, and I think it's um, it's fascinating because you realise how things can change uh, and progress, uh, uh, hopefully for the better. Well, I mean, what I would I'll just add one more thing. I don't want anyone who's listening to this to feel ashamed or embarrassed that they don't understand race and that they feel a bit confronted with the term. It's normal because yes. we didn't grow up with it. Like if you grew up in the US... You would be very familiar with it. You are completely because yes. yeah, everything's yeah. about race yes. there. And I, and I don't think necessarily that their solution is the right one for us, but um, it's okay to feel uncomfortable because we haven't been educated in this space. So I'd like to invite people into the conversation knowing that I went on a journey and I'm the CEO of the Diversity Council Australia and I did and I'm a called person and I didn't know anything about race. There you go. So I had it's to go helpful. on the same journey. That that's really, really helpful. Now People who live with a disability or have neurodivergence also typically face dis- disproportionate disadvantage, particularly in terms of finding employment. So what would you say to a hypothetical, naive employer who may be reluctant to hire them? It's such a good question and it's a really important one because the the problem for um, people living with a disability, including, and that's a broad category, Yes. so disability according to the census um, and all of our public sector instruments, includes people who have, um, you know, um, vision, hearing or mobility disabilities or who might use a wheelchair. It includes people with chronic illnesses. It includes people who are neurodiverse or neurodivergent. Um, it's a very, very broad category. Um, and one of the challenges around working with disability is the breadth of this category and how do you create accessibility in a workplace because you have to be very targeted and specific. What someone with autism might need will be different to someone who uses a wheelchair, um, will be different to someone with low vision or someone who is blind. So the complexity creates a lot of fear amongst employers around creating inclusive workplaces for disabled people. The, I think that where to start is to recognise that in the vast majority of cases, um, 
making small workplace adjustments is inexpensive um, and can have huge impact for people who are otherwise excluded from the workplace. And it's about understanding how our current processes, if we take recruitment, they are designed for people without disability. Um, And so if you have to access the workplace in a different way, you might be up against bigger barriers. So for example, um, we're doing quite a big project at the moment on artificial intelligence. And we've also released some guidelines recently around how to do recruitment in an inclusive way. So um, your listeners might want to have a look at our website for those tools. But say you're recruiting and you're using an AI tool, and you probably are using an AI tool even if you don't know you are. Say you're doing video interviewing or you ask someone to submit um, responses to questions. The AI tool will do things like, for example, track someone's eye contact during the interview. Now, if you're a neurodivergent person, eye contact might be something that's a challenge for you. But it may have not, making eye contact um, may have nothing to do with your role. Unless you're um, auditioning to be an actor, um, does it really matter in many roles if that's not one of your um, skill areas? But the AI tool will look at your eye contact and then it will um, assess you as being agreeable or disagreeable, open or closed, introverted or extroverted. And you may never get past that very first filter because a tool that was designed by people who were not who were neurotypical yes. didn't design it with um, neurodiversity in mind. The recruitment process is full of these barriers for people, um, and using technology increasingly. Um, creates those barriers unless you've specifically designed. So, for example, we found that just having a a dog in the background while you're doing a video interview will mark you differently. Now, if if that dog is your pet, you might be able to put it in another room. If that's an assistance dog, you know, that's part of you. So um, why mark someone down with something that has nothing to do with the job? Now, as the recruiting manager, you may have no idea that this is going on. So if you don't understand how to create an inclusive recruitment process, you won't know how to eliminate those barriers for people. Um, And the recruitment process is full of those barriers. Now, you raise some good points because I guess artificial intelligence, as that continues to progress, because let's face it, we're going to now live in a very different world. Um, One could argue it removes biases, in many cases, it can, mm-hmm. um, but clearly in those constructing those um, AI, that um, as that progresses, it could actually create bigger problems for us, for those, for this, this co- particularly for this, this group of people. Um, do you think, how do we get that onto the agenda to make sure those examples you've just raised are not, um, big corporates are aware of them? I mean, I think... It's about knowing what questions to ask when you select the tool. Um, and you're right, AI can be used for good and not just evil. Mm. Um, and you can actually, it can actually provide you access um, to, to whole new markets of people. Um, there is a worrying area in AI. It's, it's what they call hallucinations, which is 
things that arise even without the designers intending them. So, you know, that background behind you, Paul, is grey and that background behind the other people in the room, there's a white background. Mm. The AI tool might process the colour of the background differently. Right. And the, the designers of the tool have no idea why they're attributing value to particular yep. things. And so there's still – there's a lot of work that has to be done around um, the development of AI tools. There needs to be a focus on inclusion. At the moment, the ethical considerations around AI really are around privacy and – um, other ethics matters, which are obviously really critical, but we'd like to see more of a focus on what's the impact of this tool on in on inclusion. Mm. Um, even things, I mean, I mean, we're talking about disability, but the la natural language patterns that artificial intelligence picks up. If you've had speech challenges. Um, and so as a result of those, you're speaking English in a in a different way yep. to someone who hasn't had speech challenges. Um, then again, the AI tool might think, oh, you're not really a team player, you're speaking English very formally, and we're looking for someone who's a team player. And so you're attributing value to someone in a, in a way that's really inaccurate. And you're basing that on your own stereotypes and assumptions. So um, even without AI, um, even an interview situation, which the research shows isn't necessarily the best way to hire someone because um, it's like an audition. And I think that we've got to improve our skills as um, hiring managers um, so that we can access better talent. Because at the moment... You know, all the research shows that we overrate people who are more like us. Mm. You know, that's a very human thing to do. Um, and we find people who are more like us to be more agreeable, and they may not be. Um, and we make mistakes all the time. We lean into our own biases even without being aware of them. So it's really important to try and apply some rigour to how we recruit so we can break up those biases. The work that you've done in the disability sector, so w would you say that um, a person that's living with a disability, whilst they may have challenges, they, they could have heightened skills in particular areas? Do you have any examples of that? I mean, I think that's true for all aspects of diversity, but certainly with disability, like anything else, um, People might have unique talents that you're missing out on because they've navigated the world in a different way. If we're talking about physical disabilities and even chronic illnesses, they might have heightened levels of empathy. Um, those sorts of things are really important in workplaces. For people who are neurodivergent, they might have superpowers that you can tap into. They might, you know, if... Um, and I don't want to stereotype here about... Neuro, neuro I was very careful when I was asking you the question, but that's yeah. what I sort of wanted to draw yeah, out. Yeah, I don't want a stereotype because I think that a lot of people who are, we certainly know that a lot of people with autism um, feel really frustrated by being stereotyped as, you know, maths geniuses who are obsessive about, um, you know, detail. IT and, and detail. And, and it's a spectrum. Um, so, but what's important to know is that there might be, if people's brains are wired differently, they might have particular talents. So my, I have a dyslexic daughter 
And um, initially what was a barrier for her in terms of learning to read has become a superpower. Um, She says that she can look at information and because of how she had to learn to read, she can pick up patterns and mistakes in a way that people who didn't have her life experience can't do. Mm. So without resorting to stereotypes, just be open to the fact that people who are wired a bit differently will see things a bit differently. And if you're looking for innovation, that's important. If you're looking for problem solving, that's important. If you're looking for creativity, that's really important. Mm. Um, And if you want, and if you've got an audience of people who are accessing your services, it's really important to try and reflect the community that you're serving. And you're more likely to do that if you tap into diverse skills. Some really good gems there, Lisa. And a really good segue for me because you talk about superpowers. We're going to talk about the gay community. Um, and I think partly for me, I've seen that as a superpower because 75% of discretionary shopping is done by women. So it's allowed me as a gay man, I feel I understand women better than what a heterosexual male would. Um, and it gives me that superpower, particularly in the retail industry. When you look at the LGBTIQ plus community, it's, it does say, uh, suffer from or face rather significant challenges in society, uh, particularly around getting people to, to embrace their true selves. And I did work for um, a professional services firm that had a very strong LGBTIQ strategy, uh, yet there were many, um, particularly men, that were just not out. Uh, I obviously have some experience, but equally interesting to see from your perspective what you're seeing. What can business do to help members, do you think, of the LGBTIQ plus community feel more comfortable and included? Thanks. And I would agree with you on your assessment. I think that there's a a bond between gay men and women. I agree. Um, there might be an episode in itself, Lisa. We might have to come yeah, back on that one. And we might have to come back on them. And um, I think we were natural allies, especially at school where we hung out together. Yes. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I, I concur with that. Um, I think the first thing for employers to recognise is the LGBTQI plus community is a, a group of very diverse people um, who've had wildly different lived experiences and um, and and different identities and different paths through life. So it's imp- again important not Very to stereotype. Yes. Um, There's oh, diversity in the diversity. Of course, yeah. absolutely. There's diversity within the diversity. Um, so, I mean, the experience of a, a trans person and a, a gay man or a, a lesbian woman will be Very different. different. Will yeah. be different at work. So. That's the first thing. I think that we did some research with Pride and Diversity on being out at work. I was so surprised by that because that research was coming out at a time when I thought we'd made more progress than we had. And what it showed was that um, 30% of of LGBTQI people are not out at all at work Mm. and that the rest are out to a certain degree with only 30% being fully out at work. And that, I find that disturbing, right? Because you think yeah. about marriage equality and the way the community, how far we've come. No. It's I mean, that was that report came out pre-marriage equality. Um, but I think what it showed is the complexity of being out. So, you know, there's this default 
assumption in organisations that everyone's straight. So if you're not, you're always outing yourselves. I mean, how, how many times a day do you have to come out? It's every day. It's every day. Yeah. It's, it's exhausting. It's just out, absolutely. That's what came out in our research, how exhausting the process of coming out is. Mm. All the time, having to qualify it, having to say, oh, I'm a bit different. Oh, my relationship's a bit different. I never have to do that. I don't expend any energy. Mm. Um, on doing that. So we found that there was a lot of fatigue. So just no one's obli- – we're not obligated to know what people's sexual orientation is mm. at at work. Um, Recognise there's a burden with always having to be out, with having to qualify what you did on the weekend, with your relationship status, that there's a problem in workplaces with – um, particularly around rainbow families, the curiosity people have around how those families are constructed, who plays what role in the family because we're so attached to our gender norms that we can't, our brains can't cope when we see a same gendered family. Um, you know, asking lesbian women or who got pregnant, asking gay men, like trying to understand yeah, the yeah, mechanics yeah. of it. It's just no one's business. So recognising that to be a really safe and supportive workplace, um, what you want to do is create an environment where people are able to be their authentic selves, but they're not obligated to be their authentic selves. They're also, they don't have a duty to educate you. Um, if you want to understand about how Rainbow Families operate, you can go online. Yes. There's a lot of information. You don't need to get the person from the group to educate you. Um, you also don't need to stereotype. I loved in the Hannah Gadsby um, special, the, Hannah Gadsby's a comedian for those on the call who don't know, where she talked about how she hated Mardi Gras <laughs> because, um, and she hated the flag because she's a quiet gay. She goes, where do the quiet ones go? So coming up against these stereotypes that everyone in this community is is going to be the same is something that came through in our research and our research, it's exhausting mm. to, to always have to be the representative and the expert and the person responsible for educating and to always have to qualify who you are and explain yourself and to come out to your colleagues and then to your clients and then to your boss and then to and, and just have to always be either self-editing or explaining. So whatever organisations can do to remove that burden – to recognise that everyone's on their own journey. And also, if someone's not out at work, maybe it's not about you. Yeah. It might be about them and their family and what people have gone through in their lives. And this is a personal story and you cannot demand it, no, how, no matter how many rainbow flags you have up at work, whether you've got a pride network, whether the CEO is encouraging people, um, whether you're participating in Mardi Gras, you know, respect people's agency and autonomy. You don't have a right to um, ask them intrusive questions about their lives. Um, and so it's about the other thing you can do is not make assumptions about things. So if, if for example, you've got parental leave policies, make them open policies. Don't assume that everyone's in a traditional family. A lot of people aren't. And it's not just 
LGBTQ people who aren't in traditional families. It's everyone. The family, the concept of a family is different now. Don't make assumptions about um, who might want to access your domestic and family violence mm. policy. A lot of gay couples don't see themselves in those policies. They say might be experiencing violence in their relationships, but they look at those policies at work and they think it's, oh, this is about women in domestic abuse situations with men. This this isn't about me. So be very careful around language and how you structure policies and who will read themselves out of those policies and who will read themselves in. So... Um, there's a lot of places you can go to for support in this and beyond the DCA because we're not an expert LGBTQ organisation, um, but there are other organisations that I'm sure you'll have in your notes um, sure that. That, that people can reach out to and reach out to them. Don't reach out to the experts. Um, these people are willing and paid to share information with you. Um, don't put the burden on the LGBTQ community within your workplace to educate you. No, some really good, really good points there. Now, this question um, that I want to ask you, something that's been on my mind, I'm really keen to get your view on, where do you think religion fits in the DNI space? Because it does add a level of complication um, and often get asked the question, but I'd be keen to hear your perspective and, and more around how do we maintain a balance it's a really great question because I think often people are under the illusion that working in diversity and inclusion or becoming an inclusive organisation is all um, positive news stories and it's easier to do. It's actually a really complex area to work in and sometimes diversity dimensions clash. Um, and what we need to understand, I mean, my my view, my personal view is that Everyone has the right to have a religion and to um, be a religious person and that needs to be respected. Um, our research shows that people from minority religions in Australia experience a lot of workplace exclusion. Um, a lot of that is race-laden. People from majority religions um, don't experience that discrimination in Australian workplaces. I think that sometimes that gets mis. Um, we're misled on that, you know, there's, you know, the politically that's been used. Um, so it's important to establish the facts that minority religions tend to experience more exclusion than people from majority religions in Australia. So Christianity, essentially, as opposed to being Muslim or um, Jewish, for example. Um, so the workplace needs to be a place where whether you have a faith or not, you're not targeted, um, it's not held against you um, and that you're able to access, you'll be able to live in an authentic way. So it's really great for workplaces to be able to do things like um, allow people to, you know, honour and respect their own religious traditions and at DCA, for example, as an employer, we have floating public holidays. If you if you don't want to use the public holidays around Easter but you'd rather swap them for your religious holiday, then that, as long as um, that makes sense within the business, it doesn't yes. always. Yes. So as long as it fits within business parameters, that's fine with us. And that's a really great way of enabling people to be authentic around um, honouring their own religion. 
where the problem has arisen in diversity and inclusion is where the expression of religious views has had a negative impact on other people. And we saw this a lot during the marriage equality debate. And so what we would say at DCA is like all human rights, there are limits and the limit your right the limits for your rights are when they start to negatively affect other people so the boundary for your religious expression at work is when you are creating an unsafe environment for someone who might be gay someone with a disability or a woman they they tend to be the three groups that are um who who are more likely to experience harm So you have freedom of religion, but proselytizing at work is not usual unless you're working in a religion an evangelical or religious institution where that's your core business. Yes. That's not core business at work. So it can be a hard thing to understand the difference between supporting someone by having a prayer room, but saying um if you if the expression of your religion is um homophobic or transphobic or sexist mm. then that's a boundary we don't cross we have um protections in Australia around um gender and sex based rights disability rights race based rights etc so that's the line and um during marriage equality that's something we saw happened there was a tension between religious expression and lgbtqr rights uh, lgbtq plus rights um but that's where the line is mm. do you see religion as a diversity pillar yeah absolutely you do absolutely so so what's your advice then taking that thematic um and that's a question often i get asked so particularly around world pride most recently for a corporate leader who may have decided to support LGBTIQ through supporting something quite visible and a religious uh team member um having absolute um uh issue mm. disgust concern for that corporate how do you balance how do you manage through that what's what's your perspective there I mean my view is that organizations take positions all the time that align with their values and you rarely get universal support um but if you are committed to diversity and inclusion then that means you're committed to creating a workplace where you don't allow homophobia to flourish mm. and lgbtq+ people have been a grossly marginalized um group within the community without power um without voice and we've made enormous strides um by you know by i mean the reason we use the word pride is because it used to be shame mm. um and we want to capitalize on those um those those wins it doesn't hurt anyone for someone to be living their life authentically as a gay, lesbian or trans person and um I would absolutely applaud any employer who is vocal and public about it in terms of how do you manage internal dissatisfaction around it look I think that 
um, you just have to step up with bravery. Mm. Um, I th- Is there respect required on both sides, do you think, or it go, does it go beyond it that? Depends on, it depends on what's happening. I think if someone is upset because they – if they're expressing their – dissatisfaction in a way that's harmful to other people, that's that's a, a matter that you have to deal with in a workplace. If it's just someone who says, I don't support this organisation because they've come out in support of marriage equality, then maybe that individual has a decision to make about, yes. about is this the right organisation for you? Organisations make decisions all the time about what they st- stand for and what they don't stand for. And this is just another example. Now, finally, this is a retail podcast. So how important is the retail industry, do you think, in driving change and setting a good example in your eyes? So just to give you a bit of background, one in 10 Australians work in retail. There's 1.3 million people. It's a $400 billion sector um, with the largest private employer. No pressure. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I'm a not I'm not an expert on the retail sector, but as a as as someone who of as you know, any member shops. of the humor, as someone who shops, um, I think there's enormous opportunity here to be um, to reflect back on the community, everything that's wonderful and amazing about our very diverse Australian population. I think that um, there's a market for everyone. And so reflecting everyone and their authentic experiences is really, really important. I mean, why would you want to close off a particular market as a retailer? Um, Isn't it in your interest to be... um, Accessible and available. Accessible and available to as many people as possible. And I think that um, community expectations have really shifted as such that I think the general community is expecting retailers to be inclusive and to be, um, you know, supporting um, progressive positions around, you know, women's empowerment and LGBTQI inclusion and anti-racism and and accessibility and all of those things. And the business gains are enormous. So I would encourage employers to get on board, notwithstanding it can be complex, and especially if you're a small employer, it can feel daunting. Mm. Um, So what I would say to smaller employers is don't try and do everything. Um, but maybe pick one area that you think might be um, a really important um, area that might resonate with your market and try and do that really, really well. I completely align with that advice. I have loved chatting with you, Lisa, and I think there's no doubt you set a very high benchmark but all achievable. Uh, appreciate you joining us for some retail therapy today. All the best for the work you do at Diversity Council and best of luck for the future. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Amex Lounge for some retail therapy. Make sure you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. We can be found wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. For more information about the work we do at the Australian Retailers Association, head to our website, retail.org.au. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, wherever you love to connect. All the links can be found in the show notes.